It's episode 117 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program are Diana Dybel and Rebecca Evenhoe. They are co-authors of the recent book, Conversations with Things, and we're going to have our own human conversation about how to design machines so they better understand everyone. Diana, Rebecca, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Uh, we have ha- touched on this topic a couple of times on the uh, podcast in the past, uh, and I just love talking about this because it feels like um, designing for voice, designing bots, uh, conversational design, all of that is just such fertile ground. Um, so this is great. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The book, uh, I have been looking through it the past few days. Uh, it's fantastic. I've been really enjoying it. I uh, wanted to ask you about writing the book together. Uh, I Now, a couple of decades ago, I wrote a couple of books, uh, and it was just horribly isolating, and, I just, and, and it was so, like terrible for me that I never did it again. And people are sometimes say like, Hey, you should write another book. And I'm like, absolutely not. Um, but, um, but I can imagine maybe with a co-author, it's not quite so bad. So, uh, I don't know. What was the experience like for you? Yeah, I think we definitely got some isolation because we wrote this during a pandemic. Um, so, right. you know, still got that experience, but <laughs> it was nice to have, um, to have somebody else just to, at least for me, like I felt like I had a couple of big gaps. And Rebecca and I sort of almost wrote a prenup before going into this. We actually had uh, an email that we wrote to our publisher that was like, it got dark. We're like, if one of us dies, here's how the, the book should continue. If one of us just drops out because we hate each other, here's how the book should continue. And we just like kind of came up with every worst case scenario. And I think that honestly helped a lot. I bet. Rebecca. <laughs> Yeah, fortunate, fortunately, you know, nothing, nothing bad came to fruition. I think um, it was so interesting because um, Diana and I have very similar values and really similar opinions on lots and lots of things. But to write it, we would each write our own version of a chapter. And then they would be radically different. And also our writing voices are really different. Diana's is really high energy and fun and like completely unique. And mine is very, I'll say careful. Rebecca's maybe. the reason why this book is accurate, <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> There you go. Perfect. I'm, I'm fussy. I'm the fussy, precise one. Diana is also precise, but just like has incredible energy and humor in her writing. And so we had to kind of develop a voice mm. together. Um, and I think we did harness kind of like the power of each of our, our like gifts as a writer, but it definitely was not less work to have two of us, but it was, um, I, I do think us together working through the hard stuff is, was maybe a more positive experience than just going solo <laughs> and, and just having you versus you. Yeah. I also think like, in terms of, you know, every, you've been through this stuff, like writing a book, you have ebbs and flows where you've got like lots of energy around a specific topic or at a particular moment in time. And then there are periods where you're like, F this, I hate my life. Why did I decide to do this? Who am I to write this book anyway? Like you just sort of everything piles in on yourself. And, um, it was helpful to have another person to take the reins at the points in time when each of us were either unable because of our day jobs to, um, to put as much focus and energy into it, or because we were writing in a really wild moment in history and just life yeah. got in the way. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's great. And I guess, you know, in retrospect, maybe I didn't write it by myself. It was me and my inner critic sort of battling every day. Um, that is that that sort of contract almost that you wrote with each other is just such a good example of writing things down before you start. This is something I say, like when I talk to startup founders in my day job all day long is, you know, not just uh, how the company is capitalized and the operating agreements, but write down like what happens if it goes poorly and what happens if it goes really well, both of which are unaccounted for generally. Uh, so that's great that you did that. That sounds really good. Even if it got dark, mm -hmm. you know, that's good. You like work through and maybe start processing a little bit of what's going on. So uh, that's excellent. You mm -hmm. mentioned your day jobs. Uh, how, what do you do that sort of enabled this book? And where did the, um, the uh, clear passion for this topic come from? Yeah, so I'll hop in. Um, we both have writing backgrounds. Um, I have an MFA in fiction writing and through a writing pathway, I became what is called a conversation designer, which is, you know, the, the field that does this conversation design UX thing. I, um, yeah, through writing, I got a job at a startup when I was still in grad school. And then um, that expanded to become not just a part-time summer job, but turns out my whole career. And so, yeah, I, I worked at a startup for a long time. I've worked at an agency and I also worked at Amazon Web Services um, as a consultant, helping people not just with conversation mm. de design, but also strategy. Um, because businesses are not only looking to design the products, but sort of finally going, okay, this technology isn't just new, it's sticking around. How does it fit into like the larger landscape of our business? Um, so that's what I've been doing the last, uh, not quite a decade, but coming up on a decade. Cool. Cool. How about you, Diana? Um, my background is like Rebecca said, we both have writing backgrounds. So I have a degree in playwriting and my overall background is in the entertainment industry, but my design background is in qualitative user research and conversation design. And now I'm, uh, one of the three heads of a studio design studio here in Chicago that does, digital product strategy and uh, design. So we design like kind of wild things. We just get asked by companies like, hey, we think we need to solve banking for millennials. What should we do? It's just like very kind of big asks like that. And then we sort of go through our toolbox of should this be service design or digital product or a conversation and then kind of merge together whatever that solution should be. Right, right. Cool, cool, cool. Well, let's um, let's get into the... The, the topic here of designing conversations, I love that the, the book is about conversations and not just uh, how to use voice, right? I think the framing there uh, is excellent and it shows up all the way through uh, everything you're writing about. Maybe as a place to start, I could talk about my own experience. I kind of categorize them in two buckets. Uh, I have uh, a lot of like cylinders in my house that respond to me when I talk to it. Um, and so I, you know, I can, I can talk to Alexa and Siri. Um, I know what to say to them and I usually get back what I want. Uh, right. But that's all sort of, so I don't have to use my hands and very pre-programmed and scripted and I've trained myself. Right. So the other mm -hmm. half is, um, actually largely typing at bots. Um, on websites when I need customer support, uh, or mm -hmm. maybe there's a few that I have tried out. None of them have stuck, but the sort of like, um, you know, have a virtual therapist and like, all right, I'll try that out. Let's see what that's like. Or, and, a, and a bunch more like that. I will be your travel agent. You know, just tell me what you want. And, and all of those 
feel a lot like the choose your own adventure books where, you know, like, wouldn't it be just easier if I could see the flow chart and just pick the thing rather than have to try to guess at which thing. And they're all sort of, you want, you know, A or B or, you know, tap on the emoji or whatever it is, but none of it feels at all like conversation. And I think somewhere people are navigating between those two buckets into interesting things, but I, I don't think anybody really has much of a roadmap at this point to mix all my metaphors. So anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so where do we start? Right? Like, I think right now we're in the world of the, like, what, you remember Alan Cooper's book 20 years ago, uh, uh, the inmates in the asylum, when he talked about the dancing bear, uh, which is, you know, like you go to a circus, and you see a dancing bear, you're like, that's amazing. But after a few minutes, you're like, but he doesn't dance very well. Right. So our chat bots, like, it's amazing. <laughs> you could talk to a computer and the computer talks back to you. And then after a while, you're like, this doesn't work very well. So, um, mm -hmm. so where are we right now and how do we get better at it? There's the most the broadest question I could ask you. Yeah, I, I mean, I can hop in. Um, I think I'm, I'm always of two minds about it because on the one hand, the technology is in fact amazing. The fact that you know, something like Siri or Alexa can, you know, Google assistant, all of the, all of the big voice assistants can perform pretty well. And they're good at a few key things. That's really impressive. The flip side is like, yes, they aren't very good, but it's because the human brain is so, is doing so many amazing things when it's processing language that it is, I think it is a much harder problem than anybody predicted, even people who are experts in it to like, get close to human conversation. And I think um, it's funny. So we're recording this in September and Garner just released the chart of the hype cycle for AI. Mm. And, you know, there's like the, the peak, the, the hype, and then there's the, the, the cycle goes down and it's the trough of disillusionment. And according to this chart and Garner's research, um, the chatbots are at the bottom of the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> so people are sort of like big high, big excitement for chatbots as most often as customer support. That, that's one of the big use cases. Mental health stuff is another big use case. And I think the reason we're at the trough specifically for chatbots is because companies are going, oh, this is not as fast as was promised. And this is way harder to get good than we than we thought. And it's because language is hard. We're trying to imitate the human That's brain. Right. I just pulled up the, the chart here, um, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, and right next to chatbots is uh, self-driving cars, right? <laughs> With disillusionment, you're like, oh, my God, a, a car can drive. And when we're like, kind of, yeah. And, you know, like, we're so excited for this to happen. And then it just, it's not quite living up to anything like we had imagined. So, sorry, Diana, what were you about to say? No, I think... Um you know, there's this, what Rebecca's like hitting on is like this nuance and sort of what you're saying too, Jeff, this, um, the conversation that we can manage and manipulate within a system ends up feeling like a barrier to the conversation. I think because a lot of these companies that did put out particularly chatbots or IVR systems, which are the sort of automated phone bank that you get when you call like an airline or your banking system or something. Right. Um, those are kind of meant to be blockers to humans. So it's not, it's not unrealistic then that the experience for people is that I just want to get to a person and I can't get through this maze. And what is the right sort? Let me just see the flow chart so I can get to the right answer because it's not as natural as an actual conversation 
yet we're designing these with those kind of questions that you were bringing up in the beginning, Jeff, of like, how can I help you? Which is a super broad question. So I think the original question that you asked of like, where do we go from here? It's kind of starting to, I think, back out of what we've been doing and get better at the experiences that we're actually able to deliver on and narrow those in rather than telling people like, we can do anything with this, but not actually having the the analysis and the nuance needed to really deliver on a human experience, which is what a conversation is. Interesting. So like the way out of the trough of disillusionment on the, on the chart is very, it's a very shallow curve, right? Like we go straight up and we crash down and then we gradually do it. And seven years from now, we will not have noticed how how good it's gotten both you know our cars driving themselves and uh our computers talking to us and that's typically how it goes like um if you look at the camera on your phone every year it gets better but if you compare the first and last one holy crap right like it's it's absolutely mm-hmm. amazing what these what we're capable of now and nobody really knows they just get the next one next year and it's a little better and a little better and a little better and so maybe teasing out what you're saying in there is is how much of this will be slow steady technological advancement of like natural language processing and you know the actual bits and pieces of voice recognition versus designers doing their work and making systems that are more empathic and more culturally sensitive um, and all the things that you sort of work through in your, in the chapters in your book. Um, And maybe they both happen at the same time, or hopefully the design informs the technology, but I don't know. Where do you, where do you think that happens? The technology is actually getting pretty good now, especially ASRs like the speech recognition engine. Um, So there's a lot that can be done. I think now it's time for us to like go back and look at the design side of things, which sort of got left behind almost necessarily because there weren't people that were, or at least as much people as were needed to do it. And now we're seeing kind of an influx of people into the conversation design community, which is great because now there are people that are thinking about and sort of trained to think about what is the experience for the person and how can I make this better for them versus what can the technology do and how do we do this the most efficiently? And being able to like kind of separate that out, I think is going to help us get to meet the technology where it is now. And the technology will continue to get better because that's what technologists and engineers do. I think definitely it'll be incremental technological advancements um, that are required for this to get better. I think designers can do a lot of things. I think they can um, both work with the constraints we have today. um, and, And like Diana was saying, make things work with where the technology is at and sort of back away from like setting expectations too high or um, doing any of these confusing things that actually lead to like errors and bad user experience. So there's like, we can help today. We can make the most of what we've got. We can also inform um, our businesses and organizations about the gap between human conversation and what the tech is doing. So um, in some ways we can identify things that need to improve or things that put constraints on our design because we watch, you know, through usability testing, through looking at transcripts, we're watching people actually have these conversations and we're seeing all the things that can go wrong or all the things that people are reacting to and noticing aren't, you know, quote unquote conversational. Um, And, you know, I think we can also, alongside technologists and other folks, help provide the vision for what it looks like in the future. So 
we're both like the ba- the band-aid and the, you do to, to go back to mixing metaphors. We're the band-aid, we're the bridge, we're <laughs> That's know, right. a lot of things. And this episode of Presentable is brought to you by privacy.com. All right, friends, I want to tell you a story. I almost got caught out just last week by a phishing attack. I got this text message saying that a package had been held in customs. Uh, It's trying to be delivered, and I needed to pay duty on it. I get this all the time. I get lots of unexpected packages from the U.S. as part of my job. I don't even think twice about it, so I tapped the link. I started filling filling in the very accurate-looking form, Uh, and I was just about to get my credit card when it occurred to me, hey, wait, I should double-check this. Hold on. Slow down. I checked the URL. Sure enough, it was totally a scam. Like I dodged a bullet, but just barely. Um, So you know what? Privacy.com makes a tool... Uh, to help in situations like this, where where you might get caught out, putting a credit card number into a form uh, you didn't ex- that you were expecting something different. Now suddenly somebody's got your data, right? They make it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure by generating virtual credit card numbers. So privacy masks your bank information, so you never have to worry about giving out to people you don't know online. This is incredibly important. Like this. Uh, the degree to which we do so much e-commerce, so much uh, shopping and and uh, putting our credit card numbers into so many different websites, use a different credit card number for everyone. It's, it's incredibly easy to do and really important. You can take back control of your payments, decide who can charge your card, how much, and how often, and you can close a card, get rid of the number at any time. Uh, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent, all of those things. Uh, Privacy has partnered with the good folks at 1Password, an app that I use all the time and love. Uh, You can create, use, and save uh, cards from privacy.com directly within 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits as all your other privacy cards, and you can set the spend limits, create single-use, merchant lock cards, whatever you want. So head to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up for an account. If you're a new customer, you'll automatically get $5 in your account to spend on your first purchase, free money. So go to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, you were, uh, we were just talking about the gap between what the systems can do uh, and what we expect from a conversation. And that's uh, uh, where I was just super intrigued about how you break apart all the bits and pieces of conversation that uh, we as as humans sort of are, are essentially pre-programmed to do, right? That, um, that a conversation is a collaborative thing, that it's like a, a dance back and forth, and all the little cues that happen that make it more realistic. It's probably one of the reasons why even uh, uh, having conversations over Zoom get more tiring than conversations in person because the resolution isn't quite right, let alone talking to one of our little cylinders, you know, on the counter. So, um, so talk through a little bit of that. That's super interesting to me. Yeah. In our, um, so Diana and I are not linguists, but we've, our, our work is very much informed by that. And we hang out with linguists and have worked with them. So it was really important to us to kind of unpack like how, um, how impressive a conversation is and how responsive people are to each other. So in our, um, one of our early chapters, we sort of break down everything that's happening when two humans talk to each other and 
all the different technologies that are required to imitate the different, the different parts of that process. And humans are pulling in all kinds of data. There's data from the language, there's data from the tone of voice, our facial expressions, history. We know a lot about potentially the circumstance, the person we're talking to. We have a sense of the time of day. All of that informs the meaning that we take away from another person and how we respond. These, you know, machines and algorithms can can do only very pale imitations of each of those things. Uh, And so, you know, like you said, when you're talking to a cylinder on your countertop, it's taking your voice data, but it's not taking in visual data, for example. So it's much easier for it to misunderstand you. Um, And it doesn't have the same deep history of you and context abilities that, that a person does. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thinking about how that like comes back at you too, oftentimes, especially if it's just voice only, we're used to as humans, um, many of us being able to take in information through our eyes, through our sense, through um, not just our ears, like we're getting a lot of different inputs in the same way that we're giving a lot of those outputs. And so just having the, the audio come in, your brain has to work harder in order to parse the information, remember the information and be able to respond back to it. So it's, it's a lot that's going on, which is exhausting. Like it's the same way that, you know, on zoom, even if you can see people, the response time is not as quick. So you might miss a smaller gesture. You might, there might be a lag in what somebody says and the tone of voice that you can process. So there's, there's a lot of missing information. Uh, but I do want to like asterisk that and just say, just because it's missing doesn't mean that that's the thing we should be going after right now. But I think there's a lot of people racing to do like sentiment analysis, which is sort of deciphering what somebody is feeling based on the linguistics of their phrasing or the tone of their voice and adding more ingredients to a pot that's boiling is not necessarily the way to make soup. Like there's, <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to throw in so many metaphors. This, this. is great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you just kind of have to be looking at like what you already have and is this working and how do I make this work before I start tossing in more things? And otherwise you're just going to end up with like a big mess that is, as we've seen, like the UN has already put out a report that AI is causing harm and violating human rights and needs to be paused until that can be resolved. So like the fact that it's raising those types of flags means we're not doing enough yet. Right. Right. It's uh, interesting how you break down some of the things that uh, you have to understand about conversations in order to do them well. Um, And like I said, I think, you know, a lot of that is very intuitive for us, but a lot of it can be based on power structures, based on cultural differences and stuff like that. Uh, my partner, uh, is from Scotland. I am not. And, uh, so when I was reading the section on overlap in conversations and interruptions, I realized, oh, this is something that she and I have had to negotiate, frankly, because it feels that, uh, in, in a, she sort of got, uh, this, uh, Glaswegian, um, speaking pattern. Uh, and, and when we go visit Glasgow and her family, uh, they just all talk on top of each other. And it's a sign that they are listening to one another by, you know, like, let me finish what you're saying. Cause I get it. And we're connected and it's a sign of respect and listening and engagement. And to me, I'm like, Oh, you want me to stop? And so, you know, we go visit her family and I just sit there for a week. Totally. I'm from, (laughs) they just talk and talk. So yeah, yeah, I'm from Kansas. I lived in Kansas for like 27 years and 
then lived in Florida and moved to Brooklyn. And the the overlap here is a lot tighter as well. And a lot of people that I talk right. to are that are more from the Northeast. Um, yeah, I would feel like they were constantly interrupting, but then I, I, it took a while to realize, no, they're just participating and I should just keep going. Like that's the pro that's the protocol. So yeah, it is, it is, um, instinctive and you learn it where you grew up, you learn it from the people that you grew up with, but, um, there are a lot of different cultural factors that go into something behavioral like turn-taking. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't, I can't imagine Siri interrupting me and to to try to finish my sentence, you know, uh, whereas I'm more than happy to interrupt Siri and say like, yeah, I got it. You don't have to read the whole address and the, and the postcode. I got it. You know? So it's, we're trying to figure all that out, aren't we? Yeah. That's a lot to do with, uh, power dynamics too. Like you think about, um, those infamous conference calls when we were all in the same room and we would have a, like a pod in the center and you would be calling somebody else who had a pod in the center and there would be like 10 people on a conference call and it was always like, oh, okay, no, no, yeah, no, I'm sorry, you go, good, yeah, what, sorry, what was that? Like, yep. it was just endless stumbling over each other, trying to be polite or make sure that you're not cutting somebody off because you don't have any other clues. It's just the audio. And there is that sort of wonky power dynamic of like, sure, mm. you could be in a room where it spans, you've got an assistant to the CEO and you're talking to a group of people that spans from the assistant to the CEO. And you don't know who you're cutting off at any given moment in time. They don't know who they're cutting off. And so it's sort of this similar um, back and forth of when the assistant, the digital assistant might take more power or less power, depending on what the topic of conversation is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. So much deference and um, implied hierarchy and all of that stuff. And and we've, we've mentioned now culture as well. Um, I don't, uh, get a sense that our digital assistants are in any way understanding cultural differences with the exception of accents that you can choose in preferences, right? Like, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if I switch to a British accent for Siri, like the voice will like, they'll start, the content will change in addition to the uh, inflection, but I'm not sure. Have you seen any good examples of that? I don't, I don't believe so. Um, yeah, I do think that, um, like, even if like assistant is billed for the U S market, I, I mean, you can't even count how many cultures are in a country so big because it's so yeah. culture is such a big word and it sort of encompasses everything from your language to your behavior, to the media you ingest, to your religious values, to your politically, you know, it, it's so many things rolled into one that it is, it would be really hard to respond or customize. But I think that the tech industry is most informed by tech culture and by white culture because tech is predominantly white. So I think that like, if um, I don't think these assistants are responding to culture very well, but I do think they are informed by um, the culture of the tech industry and their, and, and problems can stem from that. That's part of the reason, like when you're doing translation work way, it's not just enough to purely translate the word, but also to do some amount of localization and interpretation of what is the, are there behavior needs that need to change in the way that this assistant operates? Like, should there be more allowances for cutting people off or not cutting people off? Are there things that we want to, um, you know, should we list out all the options first or sort of give somebody a chance to respond to one thing at a time? There are these different pieces 
that unless you have somebody who is from the group that you're designing for, it's really hard to just guess at this stuff or kind of do some secondary research around it. That just sounds outrageously hard, like like an enormous challenge to be able to. I've right? seen like, it done well when it's like small levels. Yeah. Like I had a colleague who designed a an outreach phone call for a population of Black Americans living in Mississippi, mm-hmm. and so they recruited people from the community to come design this call with them and say like, how should this, how should this work? And then they had actually one of the people record the voice so that it was coming from someone within the community using the right language for that particular group, using the right style of interaction. And so I think like it works, like you said, it's really hard to do at scale. It's really hard when you get bigger because there's more variation, but when you can like design for a specific group in mind, then you can do these things that make it work better. Yep. Yep. That, that, that follows a classic pattern of, uh, user-centered research, honestly, right. User-centered design, co-design, co-creation, um, where the designer sort of steps back and facilitates the creation of a tool for a community, right. Or a service. Um, that makes a lot of sense. It just also brings to mind the horrors of like trying to have a digital assistant guess, you know, like, from the cues I'm getting, I'm going to try to be, because the implications of getting that wrong just seem devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, you're touching on something that's so important, which is like the stakes are just high with conversational stuff because it feels so personal. And, you know, an example of something related to what we've all been talking about is um, we have a section in one of our chapters about the concept of code switching which is when people adjust what language they're using, how they're speaking, sort of everything about how they're speaking um, in response to a power dynamic difference or a dominant culture or something like that. And you see it, it's most often talked about when um, Black Americans or Black people have to code switch to when they're at work um, because our country has a racist history in how it views um, Black American dialects. So basically a couple people that we talked to, we quote in the book, um, they have to code switch with their devices. These, you know, we talked with um, uh, Lewis Bird and Amber Nicole Hart, and both of them describe the experience of having to code switch, talking to a smart fridge, an Alexa device, and you know that sort of feels more feels deeply personal to have to do that, especially if the device is in your home. And responding, I guess, to how the de- device is presenting, right? Like if the device sounds like an articulate white woman right? Then people are going to switch to like, how do I speak to that person in in our prevailing culture? Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. We as humans are constantly thinking about like, how do I make myself understood? And that's why like we adjust when like you were talking about the very beginning, Jeff, like I've trained myself on how to use the speakers. Like we do that instinctually of, I want to be understood. That's what communication is for. So if you're not understanding me one way, I watch my five-year-old do this all the time. Like he uses the um, remote, the Apple remote uh-huh. to find things. And if he can't get things one way, then he'll like try rephrasing another way. He'll try the volume of his voice, like anything to like get, get a different response to be understood. And it's the same thing that's happening when exactly what you're saying. Like I hear a white woman on Siri. Well, then I'm going to speak to the white woman the way that I think the white woman wants to be like, would understand me. 
This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Uh, today's internet users obviously expect a fast user experience. No matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website is, they'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. Uh, but with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitor's experience. So you can take action before your business is impacted, and it's as low as $10 a month. So uh, whether your visitors are all over the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom helps you identify the bottlenecks, helps you troubleshoot performance, helps you make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability, and that means you can monitor millions of page views, not just sample data, and do it at an affordable price. Get live website performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Right now, 30-day free trial, no credit card required. Then, if you're ready to buy, use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout. You get awesome 30% off your first invoice. So thanks, Pingdom from SolarWinds, for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is personality of uh, these bots and assistants and things like that. How that aligns with brand um, you know, I, uh, I'm a little tired of emojis. I'll tell you in marketing. Um, right. And so I wonder like, uh, when a chat bot, when, especially if I'm doing it, um, you know, on my phone in text, it all feels of a moment that we're going through that we're trying and we're finding our way. And I just wonder, will they all stop sounding so happy and upbeat all the time and maybe align more with different brand brand positionings and things like that. So, um, you two have thought about that a lot. So how, how do you think about personality of the, the things that talk to us? I think first and foremost, we think about personality as having a job to do. Hmm. Um, and that job is, you know, accomplishing goals of the interaction, which we we talk about in the personality chapter, but like, if it's supposed to be a really efficient interaction, the personality is supposed to suit that. Um, if it's supposed to be a nurturing interaction or, you know, some kind of therapy, something like that, it, it, you're going to have a personality that needs to support that. So it has a job to do. And we have different opinions about how brand fits, <laughs> how brand fits into that. Um, but I, Diana, I'll let you chime in and maybe we can talk about the, the brand stuff in a second. Yeah. Personality, like Rebecca was saying, definitely should be there first and foremost as a function to how should this, uh, bot behave and what is the general purpose of this bot? If it's meant to be like, just get me to like, let me pay my bill. Why do you need a personality? That's just interfering with the process of you taking care of paying your bill. If it's relational, if this is some a bot that's supposed to know you and like coach you for months on end, then maybe a personality is more useful there because again, it's about that behavior and that ultimate goal of what does this user need and how should this bot behave? And so like, like Rebecca said, we disagree on um, how much this should relate back to brand or marketing's role overall in it. And I think we do agree that like, this is a design problem to solve, not a marketing problem to solve. However, I come from the camp of it is still the company speaking to you and sort of this overall content strategy of what is the voice of your company, what is the posturing of your company so that it feels like it's still the company talking to you if that bot is meant to be an extension of the company, particularly in like customer service scenarios. 
if it's like its own offshoot, the way that like another startup within a larger company might be its own offshoot, then I feel like there's, you know, you can sort of make a divide and separate it off a little bit more. But Rebecca has a different stance. Yeah. So I come from, I've been at least thrice burned by um, working on a, a project and having a marketing team be like, well, we designed the personality. And it's often this, you know, emoji heavy weirdo thing where it has a a name and, and, you know, she likes, she flies kites and all of this (laughs) random (laughs) stuff. And it's like, this doesn't have anything to do with what we're trying to accomplish. And so I, I, I'm a little bit more um, of a blowhard about this comes from the designers. And of course people are correct when they say, when you have something like a chatbot or a voice assistant, it is the most literal embodiment of your brand that's going to exist. So of course it has to have a relationship with your brand, but um, to loop back to, to this idea of culture, what people who aren't conversation designers might not realize is like how cultural something like emojis are. Like a lot of emojis are very gestural. Guess what is cultural? gestures. So those emojis could be communicating very different things to very different people. And a lot of times um, people don't think about the repercussions of that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For me, the way I've always, always thought about brand and the way it intersects with the user experience work that we do uh, hinges on trust. Uh, And I know that then uh, asking our users to trust a disembodied voice it's a big ask. Uh, and I think a lot of what you're talking about um, is around how can I sort of facilitate a conversation such that people will feel like they're being heard, they're being understood, and that their interests are being looked out for. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me then shift the conversation just a little bit. Uh, with any uh, any sort of new advancement, I, I've had uh, designers on this podcast before talking about alternate uh, uh, augmented reality or virtual reality and things like that. And uh, and the conversation always heads toward like how do we actually do it now? Like wh- you know, um, and uh, and I mean like how do what is the process like? How do we interact with these engineers? What deliverables do they need to be able to communicate the intent of the design? And, uh, you know, I, earlier I sort of facetiously mentioned flowcharts, like show me the flowchart so I can just jump to the part of the conversation and skip all this back and forth. But are we using flowcharts or are we, what are we des- actually designing? Like, are there scripts, you know, like, what's it like? This was actually one of the big reasons that we thought we might have something to add to the conversation of uh, conversation design. And we wrote the book is this is a huge question. And even in writing the book and going to our friends and colleagues and saying, what do you do? Everyone's super secretive around the kind of documentation they have. Um, And partially that's because it's on lockdown. Like there are certain companies where it's proprietary. They can't share it. There are other places where like, it's just a mess and it's embarrassing and nobody wants to share it. And the problem is because like, there's not one good way. Conversation is so circular and back and forth. There's not really a linear path. So trying to design this the way that you would design a, like a UX flow through a website, it's not the same thing, but the tools we have are more or less built that way. So we're still sort of stuck doing that. Like there are 
a lot of things coming out on the market. Um, Voice flow exists, lucid chart, um, different tools that you can use, but Rebecca and I are both still fans of flowcharts just for like the simplicity of what this means for dev and handing off something that makes sense to them, as well as having scripts so that you can think through like, what is this conversation actually going to feel like and helping to share that with stakeholders. And I think it just boils down to that point of who is this documentation for and what do you need to resolve through the documentation and make whatever documentation you're going to make, make sense for the person that needs to read it. Yeah, I think, I mean, yes to absolutely everything Diana just said. And I think what conversation designers are really good at is moving back and forth between different types of conversation. So we do work with sample scripts, which is what it sounds like. It's like a little little short one-act play of how one possible pathway of a conversation can go. Um, we also make flow diagrams, and a lot of people misunderstand them. Like a lot of people don't have never seen one that a conversation designer would make, which is actually like a map of every single prompt, every single intent that's supported under all the different logic conditions. So like they're quite specific and they do have a quite a bit of flexibility in them because they show how you move from one branch to another and things like that. But so, that, you know, we, we can do a sample script, which is one pathway. And then we also work with flow charts that show all the pathways. So it's sort of like we're able to move between a specific branch of the flow to a sample script and back again. And to have that kind of level of understanding with that documentation is usually like a lot of people don't want to get that close to the details other than like a developer who has to build the thing. But um, like Diana said, Mm -hmm. not everybody on the team needs to know with the level of specificity as the conversation designer. So there are other forms of documentation that are potentially more useful to people and Every form of documentation has pros and cons. They're good at one thing, but they don't shed detail on the other. And so it's really about, like Diana said, who is it for? What are you trying to accomplish with it? Um, Are you trying to share information? Are you trying to get approval? Are you trying to hand something off? And then figuring out even as specific as like, who are you working with and what what are they into that? I think that's a big part of a designer's job is... um, getting people the information that they need at the level that they need it. Yeah. I was just thinking when you mentioned approval, uh, just how many times in my career I've like, you know, stood in front of a screen full of mock-ups showing a set of executives, the future, you know, I was like, what would that be for the voice? Uh, You know, which I guess maybe you would play back audio and they could hear potential conversations and, and either way they're going to have the, um, uninformed opinions on it. And so it's really, um, it's the same process of, you know, trying to project a vision uh, while at the same time, hold on to the real, uh, the reality of what the technology can provide. That's exactly it. A lot of times, um, audio prototypes work wonders, um, storyboards work really well, particularly mm-hmm. on multimodal stuff. So you can have screens there if you need to. Um, it just helps to get a sense of like what, you know, when you are talking to those executive stakeholders who just need to see what does this do in the world? What problem are we solving? Um, having just little snippets and how somebody might hear it and what they're doing when they hear it helps really fill in the gaps there. Yeah. Yeah. 
let me ask you then about validation research, right? Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm wondering like the outs, the, the logs, right. Of a potential, you know, we're, we're used to like big, like Google analytics, big packages, uh, that, um, that can show us sort of what groups of people did and things like that. Um, in, in some ways, I think it feels like it might be a little easier when you just have transcripts of conversations back and forth, uh, or maybe not. Uh, like, how are we getting at, are these conversations effective uh, beyond just sitting in labs, listening to people try it? Yeah, I think um, we're pretty passionate about the fact that you need quantitative analysis, you can look at error rates, drop-off rates, what intents are getting, you know, what parts of the conversation people are traversing through, what parts they're not really getting to. Um, that can give you sort of like hotspots and benchmarks. So like if you have something like an accuracy rate, we know that 80% of people are not encountering error states, for example. All that gives you a, some some numbers to keep an eye on and some places you might help you identify problems. But in order to truly diagnose what's happening, you have to look at transcripts. Those, those patterns, the specifics of how to fix it will only emerge if you're looking at like a lot of uh, transcripts to be like, oh, is it that, you know, is it a bug? Is it just that we don't have an intent that we should have? Is it that people are saying this word and it's mapping them to the wrong thing? And you, you can only find those patterns when you're looking at transcripts. Recordings are also helpful because it's like the next step up. You can hear the tone of voice, like how, how angry is somebody? And you can also hear like, um, if the, if it's like a speech recognition issue, I remember I was doing one call one time where it was in the deep South. And so people's yes was getting registered as a no, because the yes and the no were so close together sonically in mm. what was coming out. Um, and that was like super frustrating, understandably for people. Yeah. And so recordings help with that, but very infrequently do you get recordings. And I would say very infrequently, especially with some of these bigger platforms, if you're outside of them, do you get the full transcript? You get sort of like what Rebecca was talking about initially, the hotspots of like, this is, you know, people go through this intent 200 times. People, um, you know, you can start to see like, okay, so this is the drop-off point, or this is like uh, the error message gets triggered in this intent 50 times, something like that, that lets you understand like, okay, there's a problem here, but I, I don't have enough details to know exactly what it is. So maybe now I need to take this and go do a little bit of usability testing to kind of try get in there. Yeah. And I guess the usability testing you can do uh, with a human on both sides, can't you? You can just follow a script and you don't even need the technology to be working perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like conversation designers have all these really cool methods and really creative methods to test products that don't even exist yet. We can, we can prototype hardware that doesn't even exist yet by using the method you're describing. Interesting. And then uh, afterwards, you just search the logs for swear words and that, <laughs> that points the way. Huh? Right. You know, I was going to bring up an example too of something that, um, that sort of demonstrates the importance of looking at transcripts. And like Diana said, often you just get the pieces that didn't work. But looking at a full transcript can be really valuable for things like, um, you know, it would be very easy for a voice system. Like if I say, is the vaccine safe? Or if I say, is the vaccine unsafe? Um, those are opposite questions, but a system could very easily 
map them to the same response. Yeah. And one of them would be literally completely the opposite in like incorrect. And those kinds of things would really only be uncovered by a conversation designer looking, looking for things like that. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I thank you both for uh, for your time here. Um, the book is called Conversations with Things. It's from our friends over at Rosenfeld Media, and I will put a link to that, uh, to their website uh, in the show notes. Where else, though? Where shall we uh, send people to learn more about the both of you? Uh, you can find me. The best place is Twitter. Uh, my handle is at R. Evanhoe, the letter R and then my last name. Um, so the best place to to find me, follow me and DM me would be there. Great. Likewise, Twitter is what I tend to use at Diana does this. Um, I'm also at grandstudio.com if you just want to see what kind of work that I do and want to reach out to me there. Fantastic. I'll put links to both of those uh, in the show notes. And uh, Rebecca, Diana, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.